the joke around the office here is let's not let a transaction you know, die over a toaster oven. <laughs> Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help you accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn the best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is John Fury. John is the principal and founder of Advisor Growth Strategies. John is doing what he loves, helping owners advance their financial advisory firms. His professional goal is to improve business management within privately held wealth management firms. Since the inception of Advisor Growth, John has worked with over 200 firms representing $200 billion in assets under management. Listen, I could go on. John's full bio is going to be set in the, uh, in the show notes. I mean, he's been He's a recognized thought leader. He's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal and Investment News and all these publications. He speaks at major industry um, events. So you can read all that on, on, the, uh, on the show notes. But what I want to say personally is that I've worked with John on a number of deals over the years. And I've always been super impressed, not only just with his technical skills and, and you know, his knowledge and his ability to structure deals and to do value, you know, valuations and advise clients, but specifically on the way that he able to understand and tie the objectives of his clients like really to to the deal and the deal structuring and uh and uh you know so it's not separated right there's a real link between having the client's objectives be achieved and John really understands that he understands how to put that into structure and how to get a deal done and we've worked together closely on a number of them so i am so so thrilled to have John Fury on the show today welcome john great to be here Corey. Awesome. So, John, before we get into, uh, you know, advisor growth strategies and all that you do and talk about the types of deals and your approach to them, I want to take you back and uh, and ask you, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Because my guess is it wasn't the founder of a, of a consulting firm in the wealth management space. That's my guess. Yeah, well, going way back then, it was really, well, what I what I would love to have done is is play soccer for a living, professional soccer. But that <laughs> that aspiration went away in college, I guess. But um, when I got to college, I thought I knew what I was doing. I was actually, believe it or not, I wanted to be an accountant. Wow, wow! <laughs> I went to school for accounting and economics and came through it and worked in accounting for maybe oh geez, I would say a couple of months, and then I then I started working working in wealth management. I actually the first uh, job I had was underwriting municipal bonds, if you can believe it. Wow. So, you know, so I, I think for, for young, young people, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sports star of some, store, some sort is not an unusual thing. And, and, you know, for 99% of us, we figure out that that's not going to happen. Um, so that's interesting. And it's interesting that, you know, you went from the quickly out of the accounting field. Um, so what, what was your first real business? What, uh, how have you defined that? Well, in terms of first real business, in terms of who I work for, Corey? Is that your question? No, no, no. I mean, like, uh, you know, I don't, it, it, having your own uh, firm, I mean, maybe it was oh, yeah. growth strategies or maybe, you know, did you have any interesting businesses when you were younger, even if it was when you were a kid? Oh, wow. Yes, I did. I actually was, I guess you can deem me a sole proprietor, but when I was young, I delivered papers 
that's what I did. Uh, my parents actually did me a huge favor when I was young. And I really wanted a car. This is when I was, you know, 13 years old. When I turned 16, I really wanted a car. Yep. And they, they told me they weren't going to fund it. They'd help me out with insurance, this or that, but I had to go buy the car. So that's what I did. I got up really early in the morning and I delivered papers, or, you know, in, in Long Island where I grew up in New York. And that's, that's how I got my first car. So that was my first crack at entrepreneurship. I love it. Well, b- building that work ethic, you know, it's great when parents help you do that. So uh, it's all right. So let's, ju- let's jump now to advising growth strategies. And uh, just, um, you know, I gave a little bit on it, but tell the audience, uh, what are the various things that you do for clients in, uh, that you and your team do for clients in advising growth strategies? Yeah, and I'll keep it focused on, on the deal front. We started the company, I started the company nine years ago. And the initial idea, and we've worked together on these, Corey, is to help advisors that wanted to leave a captive environment, this is larger teams, multi-partner teams, enjoy the benefits of independence and help them do that. So, you know, over the years we've carried on, we've done dozens of, you know, new, new advisory firms, which has been fantastic. So it's been fun to work with all the industry participants, people like you, the custodians, tech folks. So we, we're still doing that and multiple times in a year. And then we also do transaction advisory. So that's, buy, sell, and that would be external, you know, think represent a buyer, represent a seller. And then we also structure, which is what, which is our most common project structure, internal compensation and equity. And we will get into that in a bit later. And then we also do strategic plans for, for big institutions. I sit on some boards and, you know, you see me around the conference circuit as well. So it's been fun. That's great. And, and, you know, Fuley deals listeners, here's the thing, John focuses in in the wealth management, you know, investment advisor space. But uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about, whether it's structuring deals, valuing deals, having deals, you know, aligned with objectives, um, tying, uh, you know, an external deal to the internal governance and equity structures and incentive structures, which John's great at. This all applies to any type, certainly any type of service company, uh, you know, so uh, it really, uh, the examples may be in a particular industry, but they really apply much more broadly, right, John? I agree with that. I think the the tenants and the principles, the business principles around transactions are not only true in wealth management, financial advisory, but other service industries, think accounting firms, law firms, even medical practices. Some of the things we're going to be talking about today are applicable in really any type of service industry. That's great. So, So let's get into it. So let's talk about um, you know, because listen, you've done M and A from both sides. Uh, you we, succession type deals. So let's talk. You know, give some of the range of deals that you that you do, and 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 also really, I mean, from your mouth, I've I've sort of alluded to it, but the philosophy and approach that you take, because I I really, um, you know, I, I don't want to skip over uh, the link between achieving clients' objectives and how you do deals. Right. Yeah. So the, the range is broad. I think on, on the low ends for financial advisors listening and industry participants, the low end, we're working transactions, think around $2 million in services revenue. And then the assets you know, in terms of investable assets of, of, a, of a firm's client is in and around $250 million. And then we've worked on transactions 20 times that size. So it's a, it's a big range of uh, transactions. We tend to work on multi-partner transactions too. Sometimes we'll help think a single owner sell a firm. That happens. We do do that. 
But most of the transactions we're involved with involve multi-partners either trying to combine with another multi-partner firm or maybe sell equity to their next generation or complete a transaction either on the buy or the sell side. So that that's really the range. So the range has been broad. So if you think of, of market value, fair value, the high end, think around 120 million in consideration, total firm value, and the and the low end even, you know, in and around five million. So it's a it's a big range of of transactions. So approach, Corey also asked me about approach. We dig deep. Our philosophy here is when we're being considered for a mandate or an advisory firm is considering hiring us, we really want to go very, very deep on the goals of of the participants and the you know really the owners and what they're looking to get out of the transaction. Because I've always felt to give the best possible advice, you really got to understand that not only what they're trying to accomplish professionally, but what they what they want in the end personally as they come through the transaction. And then if you have an understanding of that, you can actually anchor to it. So if you think about if you're trying to sell your firm, the type of partner you're looking for, a buyer you're looking for, if you have clarity around that, you usually you could you could structure a transaction in a way where things like the numbers work out, the terms work out. But we've I've seen a lot of advisors have maybe false positives where they they go out to the market maybe not thinking their outcome long term outcome all the way through and then they're in a numbers game and then when you're in the middle of a numbers game you may come out with a maybe the outcome you're not looking for and you see deals fall at the altar or maybe just break down because the strategy and the outcome hasn't really been thought through yeah so let's let's talk about the outcomes a little bit right because people you know, it's easy to think about, hey, I want to, you know, sell my firm, but I want to bring in a partner and, I, you know, and I want to do that maybe to, you know, take some money off the table or, you know, things like that. But there are so many different things, right? You know, sometimes people want to uh, scale down. Sometimes they want to retire soon. Sometimes they never want to retire. Sometimes they, you know, want to expand capacity. There's, I mean, I can go on and on, right? There's all different types of objectives. So talk about some of the ones you see and the ones that trip people up when they don't take them into account. I think some of the, the big ones out there, so the premise will be, if you're an owner of, it, of an advisory firm, you would always want to manage your business to maximize optionality. And, and what I mean by that, if, if let's say, Corey, you and I are partners, we would always want to have the ability that our firm's attractive to an external buyer, perhaps. Could be maybe attractive if we decided, hey, let's build a 100-year firm or we want business continuity you know, keep it intact for our community. We may build it in a way where we want to be sure there's a way to transition ownership to others, other participants within the firm. So, or it might be what you said too, some advisors maybe just want to carry on, you know, for the rest of their professional career, as long as they can add value to their clients. And maybe they're not thinking strategically at all. They just want to keep their practice for as long as they can. So I think in in the end, we've seen virtually every scenario and you know, also ones including we want to start a company, grow it, maximize the value of the firm, and then find a partner to maybe maybe sell it to. And I think that there's room for everybody in the industry. 
Yeah, I, I, I do as well. And and so let's let's uh, sort of tie in something you said earlier, which is definitely my experience with you is that, you know, you do a lot of multi-partner uh, firms. And so when we start to talk about objectives, you know, sometimes it's difficult enough to get one person clear, you know, to help them get clear on what their objectives are and determine them to be able to then give you, you know, the uh, information you need to help them advise them and help them structure. But when you have two, three, four, five, you know, or more partners, uh, doesn't it become way more complex? Yeah, it does. I I, uh, I think it gets exponentially more complex. So think of it um, like to a power. You have a second partner to so a power of two and then a power of three and a power of four, the complexity, because essentially what if you're working in a transaction and let's say my company is the transaction advisor to get a deal done, you have to find commonality amongst all the participants. And then you need a framework to do that. We've, we've always felt you know, just a simple framework for everyone on, on the phone, you know, our process is a little bit more complicated. But if you think through a proposed transaction, you really have to not only think of the transaction of what's in front of you, and maybe what's your alternative if you don't do the transaction, but also thinking through what you have to have in a transaction, meaning if you don't have it, I must have these things, or it's a deal breaker. The next level would be things I'd like to see in a transaction. And that's where you negotiate, right? And then the third level would be things that would be pretty nice to have, which really are probably your is your emotional framework. What you what is you think is important to you, maybe your ego or other things, but is not really critical to getting a deal done. So that's that's the you know, maybe a, something to think about for any any of the listeners that are considering a transaction is to get really tight on what you have to have versus what would be you know you'd like to see versus what you know is not really that important because that's your negotiation framework right, is a way to think about it. So absolutely. Right. So, so, so let me, so let me ask you this, cause this is interesting, right? Um, cause you talked about ego, you talked about, uh, you know, uh, emotions and, you know, so some people who don't really understand what, uh, somebody like you, who's great at what they do does, uh, might think that, you know, you're, you know, uh, you have some people in your firm that are like, quants they can value stuff you have some you know smart people including yourself who can structure things um but uh you know i'm gonna ask it as a question but i think i know the answer you know what portion of this is is dealing with personality emotion egos you know being more of a i don't want to use the word therapist because you're not licensed and that's not what you do but i mean like dealing with the humanity of people yeah that's that's a great question i mean the the joke around the office here is let's not let a transaction, you know, die over a toaster oven. You know, it's kind of one of the things where, and what, what the analogy is there is, is sometimes deals fall apart, not because of rational decisions, but because of, of emotions. So, you know, the role of a transaction advisor is to be, Corey, what you said is really be spectacular on the quantitative side. That's like table stakes, though, is a way to think about it. You can't do the numbers. You really can't. A participant, so you got to have that nailed. And and there's great transaction advisors all across the industry, people who are really really good at that. But I think where the the value add comes in for a transaction advisor is 
making sure the numbers are good and fair. And that's what I would encourage you know, anyone considering a transaction is not only thinking what's fair for yourself, your partners on your side of the ledger, but also the counterparty, the person you're getting into business with. Because if you're not thinking of that, it's low probability a deal is going to happen. Because if you want to check every box on your side of the ledger, it, it becomes very, very difficult because that framework I mentioned earlier, it must have nice to have those things. The counterparty has those things too. So you got to think about that. The deal, the number needs to be fair uh, because you want your transaction to not only survive day one, but think year five, that should be the intent, year 10 and so on. But the number's got to be right. But the I think the more important thing, you know, if you're looking to evaluate a transaction advisor is can they structure the terms in the way that protects you know, the buyer or the seller or, or the client? So, so those, those are the big ones. So how, how, do you, how, do you, how are you able to do that you know, on, on the terms? It's really just cumulative wisdom, right, Corey? I mean, you do, the more you do, the smarter you get, right? It, it's like the, you know, the harder the work, the luckier I get. It's like the same thing. You, you know, the more you do it, the more you, know, you use whatever analogy you want. Steel sharpens steel. The, the more you do, the better you get. So you want someone that's experienced. And then the final piece would be, let's say you had the, the best transaction advisor and they got your good price, good terms. The other thing, and we can talk a bit about this too, Corey, is even if you, even if you got something signed in structure or we call a letter of intent or a term sheet, that's the game's only beginning, right? Because then you have to go through a whole process of confirmatory due diligence the creation where we work together, right? The creation of definitive agreements and then working on integration. So even if you got the, the, the deal structured, the game's just beginning and where a transaction advisor can be incredible, incredibly valuable. And I think maybe even the most valuable is just working through all the challenges that go with those processes to close the deal. Absolutely. And, and before we, I, I want to go down that road, but before we go there, I want to sort of, uh, push the devil a little deeper because I feel like um, there's this term unconscious competent where somebody's really, really good at something, uh, but they don't uh, fully, you know, it's not easy for them to articulate why. And I feel like, like you're, you're so good at, at this, at dealing with people, people's emotions and dealing, really getting to the core of their objectives. Um, and uh, so like, I guess what I want to ask is when you have clients that are going off the path, right? When they're getting, when, when, they, when they're focused on that toaster that you talked about, um, you know, how, how do you, how do you bring them back to what they should be focusing on? Yeah. You know, maybe we just do an example. There was a firm we helped a couple of years ago it was an, an internal transaction where they were trying to transition equity to the next generation of ownership. And essentially how the, the transaction was structured before we got in there was just, too uh, beneficial to let's call it the founders versus the next the next generation. So we were brought in to redo their internal deal, and and one of the primary tenants, and and, and this is this is a horrible thing that happens. The uh, the founders there was no protection for the minority holder. It, you know the founders were free to change the compensation plan of the firm with no protection. So they did that, you know, think, you know, founder changed their salary materially, doubled it. 
In this case, it was some, something around 500,000 to a million, which is essentially a way to cram things down. So that set off a whole process of, of ill content. So when we went in and put the minority protection, that compensation couldn't be changed and also put in a yield protection because we thought that was so critical to, to repair what was, you know, you know, the well was almost poisoned. The founders didn't like that, right? They were just saying, how is it in our best interest to give someone a yield protection that didn't even found the company, right? And then- Can you just take a second to explain what that is for our listeners who may not know what a yield protection is? Essentially, what that is, is, is if you bought into a company, it, it, it's almost- a preferred interest return on the equity. It's actually what it what it is. So it guarantees you a minimum return on the equity. So if they, you know, in this scenario, the way we built it is there would be that yield protection would exist for the first five percent purchased, and then after that, you're in the table with every, you know, thing in the same bucket with everybody else. But it essentially, why we did that is it did two things. Number one. The founders are the ones who controlled the firm. So it held, held their feet to the fire to run it profitably. Because if not, the cram down will go the other way, right, Corey, in that, in that case. So um, they, they didn't like that all that much. So we would, so when they started going off the rails emotionally, we reminded them, like, look, why are we doing this? When we started, you told me you didn't want external partners. You wanted to transition to the next generation, which you did before didn't work, we're putting these things in here that you're you're making an emotional response to. But if you think about it from the buyer's perspective, you have the minority partners, the next gen, it's critical to restoring confidence. So you 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 really need to do it. Or or we're not going to be able to proceed. And and you got them to do it. We got them to do it. Uh, that's great. And and listen, you know it this happens so often. We see it in advisory firms. I see it in all kinds of service-related businesses and, and other types of businesses where the uh, founding generation person of people, uh, you know, they, they, they intellectually understand the value uh, of having junior people come along and creating some sort of uh, opportunity for them to own equity or partnership track or succession to take over the firm. But for so many reasons, they're hesitant to do it and they, and they, you know, and 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 many, uh, you know, too often they they lose these people. I mean, I remember from uh, recently that we work with who had, you know, who was struggling on succession, and they actually had the perfect person who had left two years earlier because a lot of you know prom- empty promises were made. Um, and 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 it's not that the founders were actually bad people; they actually intended to take care of the uh, of the junior person or the, you know, this, this actually was a senior person, but not a partner. Um, but they never got around to, you know, putting a deal in place and giving them any kind of comfort or guarantee or legal structure. And the guy left. And then, then they were struggling to find, you know, a place. And, and frankly, it, uh, on that deal, we actually had them go back to the guy who was originally, who left two years ago, and they ended up selling the firm to him over time. And you want to talk about their first emotional reaction to doing that was so negative, but he was the logical buyer. He knew the clients. He, you know, he, he, he knew the firm. So, you know, it's interesting. Too many people make that mistake of not doing what you advised your client to do. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and, you know, by the way, as we get into examples, I wouldn't take any example as that's another challenge in our industry. Any example I bring up may not be applicable to your situation. So don't take it as gospel or anything, but 
I think examples are important to illustrate um, the concepts Corey and I are, are talking about here today. So, but but Corey has uh, has nailed it. I mean, with with his example, some of the challenges that that are true in really in any services industry is is if you think about what your business really is. It really is 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 a service itself that relies on people, smart professionals, to deliver it. So, if you want to advance your firm, if you want your firm to sustain, it seems like such a simple concept, but a lot of owners just don't get it. You need bright, talented professionals to advance the firm, and at some point, the bright, talented professional people always. You know, n- number one, they always want to grow, but number two, they want advancement. So if that path is not there for them, you know, Corey's example can happen. So we we spend a lot of time with clients across the industry, helping them figure out, let's not say compensation or equity, but growth sharing. Company grows, a person's contribution grows. Think non-owner contribution grows. How do you provide them the runway to go to to walk into? So it takes two to dance, right? The company needs to provide the runway, and then the participant has to, you know, drive down the road effectively. And you know, John, for people who haven't been through this, I don't think they realize the range of options, right? You know, you could you could obviously increase people's comp over time. There could be bonus plans. You know, there could be um, profit sharing. There could be phantom uh, equity. Uh, type things, options. Uh, they could be restricted equity or other types of equity, you know, given or 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 purchased over time. I mean, you know, and there's probably a bunch of others. And one of the things that um, that you help people do, and and I help people do in a different way, right, is to try to figure out, you know, which of those vehicles makes sense in their situation. But there are a huge number of options, right? Tons of options, and and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur and, and owning your business is, is to really provide the path for you know think think participants to to share in the success of the firm. Corey's right tactically. I mean, a lot of times owners just look to maybe a buy-in program, buy the equity, and that that is appropriate because in in a lot of situations, because that's true. You know, normally voting control interests. You get the full value of the firm. And then the challenges, of course, is is how it gets financed. And we can talk about that a bit if you want. But I think where we're, you know, this allows us to put our creative hat on when we, you know, the word I use is, or words I use is growth sharing. Because if you think of it that way, as the firm grows, a contributor, you know, on, on a team can participate in a firm's success through other vehicles. And, and Corey's referencing them. It could be simply bonus programs, right? That's W-2 income. You do better in a given measurement period. You get a return for your contribution, or it can be synthetic forms of equity, which would be phantom, could be profits, interests, or any derivative of that. So I think where we're seeing the future, at least in wealth management and the in the financial advisor industry, is way more creativity than than, the, than existed even when I started the firm, where everyone was just really reverting to buy-in programs. You either buy the equity or you don't. And then a lot of founders put unrealistic criteria or price to purchase the equity. And a lot of that's going away now. So I think the, the industry's 
or I shouldn't say going away, it's just improving. The industry is getting a lot more sophisticated. Yeah. And, and although, you know, the other difference that's happened is, uh, you know, when you and I first started in this industry, there weren't a lot of financing options to finance, uh, you know, these, these internal succession buyouts or even, you know, uh, other deals. I mean, there, although there are a lot more now, there still is the issue of how the junior folks uh, are going to come up with the money to, for a buy-in program. So that works for some, but not for others. And these other vehicles, uh, you know, are important. Yeah, I think when you do the math, it's, it's difficult for a next generation contributor to buy equity. Think about it. I mean, some firms that may have free cash flow in and around, you know, even think firm with 5 million in revenue, 2 million in profit, that firm could be worth anywhere between 10 and $15 million. And even to buy 10%, which would be a meaningful bite. If you think about it from an after-tax dollar perspective, that's, you know, a million dollars or more. There aren't a lot of next-gen contributors, at least that we've run into that have personal net worth that can just stroke the check, right? So it needs to be financed. So where where can you go? I mean, in, you know, in years back, the only option would be maybe even internal seller financing, which, you know, I got to tell you, Corey, conceptually, our firm's not a huge fan of that. And we can get into the reasons, but the primary one is just the risk sharing equation and the owner's view, the founder's view that they're essentially financing their own buyout with their own money. That'd make a lot of sense. But the good news is, as you were mentioning earlier, there, there are more financing options online, purpose-driven firms with SBA loans or even non-purpose loans on a, you know, on a national basis. So without bringing you know, brands or talking about specific firms, it's out there. And even uh, local banks now, firms that are a little bit Larger, think ten million or more in revenue, are are now finding um, financing even in their local markets. Right. So, um, you know, I, boy, we we could talk for hours, John. And of course, you know, the, the podcast is uh, can't be that long. So, uh, let me just um, let me give you an opportunity. Uh, uh, if there's any other uh, like highlights or particular things people should be concerned about, or or or, or types of deals that, that that you do that we haven't talked about. Let's just take one more segment here and, uh, you know, give you an opportunity to uh, give us some less wisdom. Yeah, I, I think if you're if you, you're an owner of an advisory firm and, and, you know, maybe some risks to start thinking about is I, I always think through counterparty risk or help clients think through counterparty risk. If I go through this transaction, what could happen? And that could be a lot of, a lot of times it's thought through just with an external buyer or partner, but it's also true internally. Corey brought one up himself. We've seen scenarios even where you know, founders try to transition to a next generation person, and then they wind up doing something else and, you know, and leaving you know, the founder in a scenario where, or founders where their, their outcome wasn't what they, what they had hoped. So I, I would, that, that would be my advice to the listeners is, you're considering anything, think through who you're getting into into business with and why. And a lot of your due diligence, if you're selling your firm, should be with, think, uh, transaction readiness. What is the source of capital? Can they effectively integrate my firm? Will my clients be okay? Will my team be okay? 
those types of things. So think about not only what's on the term sheet, but what life looks like, I think, five years down the line. That's such great advice because, listen, there are, um, I mean, I think, um, uh, I don't know the statistics specifically in the uh, in the investment advisor space, but in general, uh, the statistics on uh, certainly mergers and acquisitions uh, that work and even internal successions that work are not as, you know, are, are uh, scary, you know, a low, <laughs> let's just put it that way, a much lower than people would think. Uh, so people think it's all about getting the deal done. But uh, the ability to make sure that it's going to work going forward and that it integrates right and the culture is right. And, you know, and we, we have some other guests who, who uh, have been and will be on the podcast where we focus a lot, a lot more on that. But I know it's something that you are super aware of, John, is that, you know, it's not it's not just a matter of coming to a business deal that can work. There's so much more involved before and after the fact. Yeah. And, and maybe just to put some structure to this. This word culture is thrown around. If you if you don't have the culture match, you know, it's 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 a deal breaker. And that's probably true. But what does that really mean? What all that really means is to remind the audience, there's three constituencies in a service firm, right? There's the owners, there's the team. So that would be think the contributors, the employees, and then of course the clients. So if, if you're not thinking through as the owner of your firm, you know, think of the buy or the sell side or the partner side, what those outcomes look like and, and, and making sure they're in alignment between all the parties, you're in trouble because you might get the deal done, but will the deal sustain? So that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So, John, before I ask you my last question, uh, just uh, tell people, I'm sure, you know, after listening to you, people are going to want to know more about you and your firm and your team. Uh, so what's the best place for them to find out more? Easiest way is, is to just go to our digital footprint, advisorgrowthllc.com. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah, check them out there. Uh, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't have time to talk about a lot of the things that John can, uh, you know, does for his clients. And, uh, and, and like I said, you know, he and I have worked together uh, and I really enjoy working with John and, and his team on deals. So definitely check them out. Um, so, John, my final my final question, and it's interesting because it sort of relates to it's a question I ask every uh, guest as a final question, and uh, it somewhat relates in my mind to this uh, concept of you know objectives and and getting people clear on what they really want and don't want. And but I want to ask it in terms of you, um, you know. Uh, so I'm a big believer in authenticity, and and I preach about authenticity. And authenticity for me is not just about ethics or or, you know, uh, morals or integrity, uh, you know, that's table stakes, right? But, but the, the other piece of it is, is being aligned with whatever's true for you and getting down to, you know, uh, is, is having the advice and not get hung up on the toaster, but get, getting really connected with what's true for them and what they really want to achieve. So how do you do that for yourself in your business and your life? What, what do you do to make sure uh, whether it's the clients you take on, the people you hire, the types of business decisions you make for your firm are authentic to who you are. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a great question because big into that here too, because the, the business thesis here is to really advance the advisory profession and help really entrepreneurs become better business owners and get the outcome they want for their businesses. You know, and that's the ultimate exit of their business. So I've I've always thought we got to kind of drink our own Kool-Aid here. So some of the things we do internally is is we think every advisory firm should have a strategic plan. Well, guess what we do? 
Right. We think we should do growth sharing within our firm. Guess what? We do that too. <laughs> I think there should be, you know, path to equity. We have that too. I just having conversations this month about that with the team here. So I, I think that's always been the the big thing for me is the advice that we're giving. We as a team have to live it too. And it's a mirroring process there because if you don't believe it and live it yourself, how are you possibly going to be authentic? with the client. So that's, um, that's how we live here. It's always been client first. Like we've, um, you know, we get, sometimes the team gets frustrated here, but it, you know, it's kind of like the, the way we chose to do business. We will never let, like we've, we've been our most significant accomplishments here is we've done 200 plus projects. And I can, I can honestly say only one of them has really broken down Mm -hmm. because we will continue to work and get the best possible outcome um, until we achieve the mandate that we've been asked to do. So that's just, you know, a lot of advisors like that think fiduciary advisor and, and we, we hold ourselves to that standard. So that's worked because we don't take on a project where we can't help and we always get the outcome for our client that we promised. So that's what we're doing. Well, I I love it because what, you know, what I hear and what I know about you is that you have, you know, you have a point of view, uh, in a good way, you know, on, 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 uh, how the industry should be and how people should grow their firms and treat their clients, et cetera. And then, like you said, you know, in order to be in integrity and, and you know, and, and authentic is that you live that point of view internally as well. And, and, and I agree, I think, you know, we can't, you know, the old, you know, you got to practice what you preach. Uh, I think it's not just a cliche. I think it's uh, super important. And uh, I love that you, uh, you do that. And I, I know you do that. So listen, John, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Corey. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.